This is Coda Radio, episode 477 for August 1st, 2022. Hey, good buddy. Welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week with his laser pointer, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Salutations, hear ye, hear ye, from ye olde Renfair edition of Coda Radio. I'm going to admit something to you. Didn't actually know it was August until that exact moment when I read the date. I looked down at the date. <laughs> I just realized it was August. As always, folks, we're at our normal peak performance. Uh, systems are operational, but barely just so. Oh, man. It's just every day, right? It's just, what does it matter? Every day's a work day, so it doesn't really matter, I suppose. Seven days a week, all air day, all day. I got something kind of special for you. So we've been, you know, we've been doing the video stream of the shows now over at Jupiter.tube, and we've been kind of coming up with music to kick the shows off with as the stream opens up and uh deckbot wrote in a suggestion and it, it was a good suggestion but i wanted to take it a bit further I, I wanted to make it even better i wanted to make it something special to the show so i'm gonna play a hit and i want you to tell me if you can identify when and where this hit comes from i grabbed this for you that's your one and only hint is i went out and i got this for you based on deckbot's email Ring any bells? It weirdly does. It's for me. It's for you. Does it? How does it make you feel when you hear it? I kind of like it. I'm kind of into it. Yeah. I remind you of better times. Is it the ninety? Is it, hmm. I feel like I'm walking into a, a trap. <laughs> My Ad- Admiral Akbar sensors are blaring right now. I don't know. What is it? It is the opening video to Snow Leopard after a fresh install. Damn it. I knew it. I knew it was something. I was like, I sound so familiar and I feel so happy. I just thought maybe it was like a Jar Jar thing. Like there was some Jar Jar skit I didn't know about. (laughs) Yeah, that's the back. That's the little music they'd play. You know, when that video come up in all the different languages and they'd welcome you to the desktop. That's right. It's, it's, It's terrible. Now I just had to pay the Mac today, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, today they don't care. Now they're like, yeah, whatever. They don't care about it. Yeah. You don't need a fancy video. Screw you. But back then, you know, that was a big deal. The fact you could even, a machine could even play video was a big deal back then. <laughs> what does your machine have? Video. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can do it. All right. Jacob wrote into the show. In a recent episode, you guys were talking about WSL. I work for a very large retailer with a large IT department and a mature set of practices, especially about what machines and operating systems they use. Linux machines are not on the list. Macs and PCs. That's it. For the Mac-based people, having access to a good terminal is no problem. I've introduced them to Warp. Thanks, Mike. For the PC folks, well, things are a bit more challenging. We've had a scenario where two of our engineers were unable to run the scripts they needed to because they didn't have some of the tools native to Linux or Mac. So they installed WSL, and after a quick restart and a quick apt get, they were up and running. This was Super efficient. We didn't have to request a Linux box from IT and get to wait for the ticket to be solved. We didn't have to wait for a Linux VM to get spun up for us. Microsoft's technique of enabling a Linux 
within our enterprise solution that just fits allowed us to quickly meet our needs without triggering any of the security configs on the machine. From my experience, WSL has the space and makes our workflow a lot more efficient. The whole IT angle, right, of needing to provision a machine or even provision a VM. Oh, yeah. And with WSL, you could just check a box. Now, you got to have certain privileges to get that installed, but assuming you have those, yeah, that's the that's the secret success right there is that the WSL will end up having more dark matter developers using it than all of the Linux desktop users combined. Just that one category of user. And the question is, and this is the flame war question, are they Linux users? I'm going to go ahead and say kind of. I I mean I kind of feel like you have to you have to say yes if you agree that by using the Linux kernel to do this, which they are with WSL, then they're Linux users. But then that also means Android users are Linux users by that same definition. Do you agree that all Android users are Linux users? Uh, no. I mean, so it's funny, right? Because the WSL guys are literally going to be pulling from either, uh, you know, Debian packages or if they're using, what was it? The one I use, Penguin, right? Which is, I think, although they have flavors now, they have a Fedora flavor, but it's Debian based. And their day-to-day workflow Right in Windows Terminal, which is effectively going to be a Bass or a Z shell, is a lot closer to a, a desktop Linux user than a desktop Windows user if they're doing like web dev. And I can feel the hatred flowing. I just got like a wave of anger in the universe at me. So you think it's like part technology stack, but also part of what you're doing? Like, are you using the system? Yeah. I mean, see, this one, I don't even know how valuable of a question this is, right? Yeah, yeah. But this becomes a weird question because of somebody who, uh, let's take our good friend Alan Jude, right? If somebody who, not not to pick on Alan, but, you know, lives in a Windows 7 machine, but basically works on Unixy servers all day, every day in terminal, or even someone like me who, okay, spends a lot of time working on a Mac machine, but does uses the Mac machine to SSH into Linux boxes almost all day and write code for Linux machines. And, you know, th- is that not like working in Linux? I don't know. Right. And Al- Alan is producing code for FreeBSD. For FreeBSD. Yep. Yep. Because uh, the devil. Yes. But I don't know. I mean, he's the, maybe you would say that they're not like GUI Linux users, but, you know, we've been talking about this a long time. The, the value of Linux is really the kernel. Yeah, I'd say it's the platform to run things on. Like, it's a general compute platform, and you can move that to your Windows platform, I suppose. All right. Well, let's uh, let's switch over to the other side. Travis writes in, and this is an interesting one. Hey, guys, question. I want to do an Apple research project, which is an expansion of a current small-scale official IRB-certified research on the secondary traumatic stress disorder for healthcare workers. So it's sort of like PTSD, but for healthcare workers. And Travis wants to do a study using the Apple Research Kit, which uses a bunch of metrics from the watch to monitor things like heart rate and blood oxygen level and steps and all that kind of stuff. Travis already has this ongoing. He says, when I go to the Apple website and I dig around with the email correspondence I have so far, it seems like they want me to bring my own app dev team to the table to create this project. Currently, I'm heading up one of the larger studies on STSD, and I that I know of at least, involving three different departments of one level, one trauma center in Virginia. I aim to use this study to get funding for and head up a larger study using the Apple Research Kit to make this the largest study on STSD in the world to date. 
My angle is that with Apple Research, I can incorporate not only survey results, but data from iPhones and metrics from Apple Watches to create what I believe could be a pivotal study that includes heart rate, O2, steps, and other measurable data from phones and watches to give a complete picture. Now, I am an emergency nurse by trade, and I know very little about coding or who I should talk to, but I know that this is a huge unspoken issue in the healthcare system. I'm looking for ideas from you guys in the know on who can code such an idea into reality. If my grant funding is enough, I think I could hire Alice.dev to do this project. <laughs> I like that you're just Alice.dev now. Or maybe I could do the research project myself. So I have so many questions. I'd love to know your initial thoughts. Thanks for your time on the matter. P.S. Long time listener since last. And I says thanks sincerely, Travis. What a fascinating idea. And for those of you curious, I put a link to... Some of the research kit information in the show notes, including the open source research kit project that Apple released a while ago, which is a framework introduced by Apple to let researchers and developers create apps for medical research. And it's called, surprisingly, Research Kit. What do you think, Mr. Dominic? I mean, that's a that's a that's a juicy email, right? You know, I haven't looked at Research Kit quite a lot, but it's very interesting how Apple has been able to kind of leverage they're just, let's be honest, gargantuan Smaug the Dragon-like horde of medical data to empower, well, frankly, researchers. I would say, man, if you can start this on your own and kind of bootstrap it, that's the way to go. Um, see where you get it. Briefly, having looked at the frameworks before the show today, I can say this is kind of, I know we like to beat up on Apple sometimes, but given these kind of, um, you know, libraries and frameworks away is a huge deal and he you know go for it you probably know a lot more about this than i do so i i completely agree and apple is uh always adding more sensors to that watch you know what i mean like it's just gonna get better this is just gonna get more powerful and so far it seems like the privacy works like the way they've built this it seems like everybody's okay with it there hasn't been a catastrophe yet but travis it's a great idea and, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting about your email, Travis, is I hadn't really thought about this. But, of course, to somebody that's completely outside this field, you would almost think that Apple supplies the developers, right? Because it's their watch, their research kit, and they are the richest company in the world. Like, you would almost kind of just assume that Apple has developers ready to go, that you contact Apple, and then they, you know, assign a handful of developers to your project. But that's... Nope. Nope. You do all the work. You you do all the things to make the watch super valuable. And then Apple takes 30 <laughs> percent. That's how that works, Travis. Yeah. I, in, <laughs> in this case, I think you can defend that a little little better because just the, the idea, for instance, like that I can monitor my heart rate, my, uh, you know, am I going AFib or anything like that on my wrist for what did this watch cost me like 400, 500 bucks? That's pretty, pretty significant, right? Just the amount of engineering that had to go into this. And the fact that it doesn't look like a potato helps means I'll actually wear it. It also means a lot of people are getting a free Apple Watch because a big part of these studies, because, of course, you can't you can't just limit it to Apple customers. A big part of these studies is giving out like the base watch. But it means free Apple Watch for a lot of people. Hey, yay. Apple Watch party. Yeah. Get, a, get your free Apple Watch. We're just going to monitor everything. All right. Matthew's got our last email of the day. Now, we did get a couple more emails that will they'll be in the next episode. Don't worry. And please do keep sending in your questions. Coder.show slash contact. I would like to build up a bit of a backlog just so that we, we have a pool to pull from. So Matthew's got our last one of the day here. 
He says, hey, y'all, I've been looking at GitOps and other newer DevOps techniques and tooling. Curious what your thoughts are and approaches are on DevOps and or GitOps specifically. It's not as exciting as other aspects of development, but I feel it impacts developer happiness and productivity quite a lot. Thanks. Um, and for those of you who don't know, GitOps is essentially a framework that takes DevOps best practices, which you know could be used for application development, you know, such as version control, collaboration, compliance, tooling, all of that, and applies it to infrastructure automation. Automation. So taking some of the best of development practices and applying it to infrastructure management. Now I know you 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 have uh, a moderate a modest infrastructure at the Madbotter, but I'm sure you've probably thought a little bit about deploying things and keeping things manageable. What are your thoughts in this area? It's an active conversation uh, because as things have changed, the self-hosting model is starting to make less sense for us. Oh, tell me more. Well, it's it's coming down to uh, <laughs> a former sponsor keeps raising their hosting prices on me. And a certain Microsoft-owned platform called GitHub, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, they're a little indie rail shop, uh, keeps lowering their prices. It just so happens that many of the tools and places we want to deploy to have these really neat like pre-configured GitHub actions that you could just, bam, now we can deploy for the uh, technologies that we primarily use, which would be Python and to a lesser degree Rails. So that is becoming more attractive because I did the math uh, Actually, last week, we would cut our hosting bill in half because of just the implied backups that GitHub themselves do that we're now manually doing all the time, right? Interesting. Yeah. So so the question becomes, okay, our GitLab pipelines, what does moving them to GitHub look like? And for the things we care about that we currently do uh, continuous deployment, continuous integration on, is that level of effort worth it? And I'm pretty sure the answer is just yes. So I, you know what, we're the, the logic here is we're small. The more we spend on hosting, the kind of the worse off we are. And also it's a big responsibility to host your own GitLab server. It's not hard, but over time, you know, there's more updates. It's just more stuff to do when GitHub is just so damn cheap now. And how, whatever you think of Microsoft, because I know some people have some feelings around this, GitHub has effectively become the de facto standard for most pieces of, uh, you know, every IDE, every deployment, every platform as a service or infrastructure as a service has a little GitHub button to just connect to and basically does uh, like, let's say, 60% of the deployment work, which now this is good for us. We lower our costs. It's also good for our customers because, you know, they're not paying us or time that we don't need to be doing hand deployments in most cases. So I'd say ongoing conversation is the right way to put it here too. First of all, we're rebuilding our website and um, the entire website workflow, we are moving to essentially GitHub and GitHub Actions. So when you want to update a page at jupiterbroadcasting.net, which is our current development site, you go modify a page on GitHub you check it in and, you know, you make all your changes and then a GitHub action runs and actually renders that static website and redeploys it. We're kind of thinking about that, too, from a Nix OS standpoint, because as time goes on, we've built out more and more infrastructure as we've leaned more and more into self-hosting. And now we kind of have a mix of CentOS. We have Ubuntu, of course. We have several different versions of Ubuntu. We have some SUSE in there. Wait, wait, wait. What was that last one? Some lizard OS. I've never heard of it before. 
Lizard people rise. Yeah. <laughs> F Atlantis. And it's like, okay, this is getting a little bit ridiculous because some systems we have a we have a standard, so like all the SSH keys are on there and all the accounts are created, everybody has the right UIDs and all that kind of stuff. And other systems we have nothing like that. And it's just like, oh, this is the box where we don't have any of those standards. Oh, can anybody help me get logged into this box? It's got to wait 15 minutes so that the one person who does have a login can get you in. And that kind of it's like no more of that. Right, right. You know, Jimbo's on the toilet so nobody can get their stuff up. <laughs> right. Because right. he's the only guy whose SSH key is actually on the box. Right. Yeah. Or, or, you know, you can have a situation where it's like the one day a year where I am completely AFK or Wes is completely AFK. And it's like, oh, well, now this thing doesn't work. Like, it's like, OK, we can't do that anymore. And the nice thing I like about Nix is that it's all defined in a configuration file. It's really powerful that way. And that configuration file, of course, you can check into Git. And so you can actually track your changes via Git to your OS level configuration and deployments. And that seems super powerful to me. Yeah, you should also explain, right, Nix is basically a CI tool. Yeah, for an OS. It's like CI applied to an OS. And that is fantastic. <laughs> I love that. Right. I mean, the, the the big thing about GitOps in general, even away from GitHub or GitLab, is kind of pushes it super hard, too. The only the, the, your source of truth, right? The thing you trust is that remote Git repo. So origin, right? So your your main branch or whatever it is. Very much like an extension of I don't know if this is a popular thing people blog about anymore, but Git flow. Are you familiar with that, Chris? Get flow, get flow. It rings a bell, but I don't think I'm familiar with it. It's like a methodology for naming and branching and tagging releases where basically, I mean, there's all, everybody has their own little snowflake version of it, but basically like your main branch is usually production. Then you'll have like, you know, staging, customer facing staging, internal dev, where literally the code flows up and it's always, you always have a way to go back, right? Uh, and people get fancy. They like to. It depends on what kind of thing you're doing, right? If you're doing binaries, you can actually like tag versions that are like the build binary. Um, and again, if you're on GitHub, you can literally just put the binary on your page if it's something you're giving away for free. And be like, here, just download the binary. Don't bother me. Oh, and then Codepilot can use your code to, to suggest insane things. I, just quick Codepilot diversion. I got it to do something crazy today. Tell me about it. So I'm mixing C and Rust in a Python project. It's called Alice. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And apparently, because I wanted to just try something, and I did like the inline consume this as C++ thing, I saw the little, you know, in VS Code, you see the little dude with his goggles on the bottom right? That's the, <laughs> yeah. I think his head spun. He was like, what the What are you? What are you? <laughs> Is this madness? Like... So then it started suggesting really weird what I think is game dev C++ to me. Uh-oh, you're getting the game dev stuff now? I don't know what happened. It was like, it is not a game, right? It was just I wanted to speed something up that's taking too long, and it it just, yeah. Watch out, you might get a little Carmack in there. And I paid for it for a year. <laughs> well, then I look forward to future updates. I'll tell you what. It, 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 it's like my hilarious companion that I turn off because it keeps suggesting stupid things to me. All right, speaking of things that aren't stupid, the London meetup is nigh. It is just a few days away as this episode will come out. It is Friday, August 5th in London. Details at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. And of course, over there, we also have the West Coast meetups posted. All that is coming up soon. And my last thing I'll just say about this, so we don't go on and on, is that if you are on the West Coast, we could use some location experts for our meetups. And we have a matrix room dedicated to just the West Coast. And that is at bit.ly slash West Coast Crew. 
Linode.com slash Coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. It's a great way to support the show. What is Linode? Fast, reliable cloud hosting. You just got to go try it. That's why you're going to get 100 bucks, and you're going to go kick the tires yourself. Linode is always improving the infrastructure. They got 11 data centers around the world, and they've always been reinvesting in that infrastructure, staying ahead of all of the other cloud providers. And you can measure it. You can benchmark the systems, and you can see it. I have tried the various different hyperscalers out there and Linode competitors, and Linode is always above the rest. They own their own Internet links. They're constantly upgrading their hardware. They've been refining this for nearly 19 years to build the best experience to run applications on Linux in the cloud. you got to go try it for your next project. I mean it. You really have to see what they can do. And, of course, Linode is about investing in the community. They were just at scale. I heard from a lot of you out there that got to see Linode and got some cool Linode swag at scale. And they're making our West Coast road trip possible this year. So we can do meetups all up and down the West Coast and get down to JPL and have that tour. Linode invests in the community because they're part of the Linux community. They've been around forever. That's how I found them originally was at a Linux fest. And now I use them for everything we deploy that our staff needs to use, our team, but also our community, anything customer facing. That's on Linode. They have better pricing than the major hyperscalers out there. They have a better interface, better documentation, and leagues better support. Whole different category. Nobody else touches Linode on the support. And when that matters, it really matters. So go try it. Go see what you can do. Go build something. Go learn something. Go do a one-click deployment. Just go get that 100 bucks and support the show. Linode.com slash coder. That's where you go to sign up, try it out, support the show, and get 100 bucks. Linode.com slash coder. All right, let's get a little spicy with closure here because apparently closure has a hole and it's a rails shaped hole. There's a hole in the closure tonight. Yeah. There's a compiler error of fear and sorrow. Anyway, closure developers are just staring down a foggy railway, just lost. They're in a 90s soul asylum video. Like wandering <laughs> children down at seeing runaway train. With that weird filter on it. Like, is that black and white or is it just muted colors? I can't quite tell. It was VH1. Thank you very much. Everything had a filter. Uh, or no, that was MTV, wasn't it? But yeah, so closure. Uh, I don't I don't know if you've ever heard of this language. I have some weirdos like it. Wes, what's up, dog? Yeah, some people you know, I some know. Some people, I don't know. Some guy, whatever. He's always challenging me with weird languages. That was a lot of fun. You should listen back if you never... Uh, had the what was it like seven months where Wes tortured me with weird programming languages that weren't Objective C? It turns out if you try hard enough, you can. There he is. So yeah, Closure has a problem, according to the author of this post, uh, Janet Carr, and I tend to agree with her. You know, Ruby was kind of obscure until Rails came out. Thank you, DHH. Closure does not have a Rails, and it has a weird succession of potential web development frameworks and, you know, suitors for, for this kind of uh, application. But no one has come out on top, which I will never repeat this in front of Wes, is a damn shame because Clojure's got some really interesting ideas in it. Yeah, now, is the idea maybe with Clojure that you're not supposed to need something like Rails, that they're going to solve this stuff lower level, you, you know, you build what you need on top of that, 
but you know, you don't need a rails with closure. There's two ways to look about look at it. Like what what do we mean when we say a rails for closure? The way you read that is exactly correct. It's you know something super abstract, high level that's easy and quick for development, and you know people can get into the language a lot easier. Or you could say no, it's not the style of rails. It's just like a de facto standard, which for a long time rails was, and in my opinion, still is for Ruby. Because when you have a standard, right, when there's a de facto standard framework, what happens is all many, not all, but most of the library developers keep that framework in mind, keep compatibility and convenience for that framework in mind when they develop their library, such that, again, just like the Ruby ecosystem, the ecosystem ends up coalescing around that framework, and it's usually pretty easy to pull in any gem and make it work with your Rails app. Yeah, there's no denying that. And you've seen the ecosystem around that uh you know i think if you were to get uh west drunk maybe one late night and you you know you got him you know going about closure i think he'd probably talk about luminous i think is how you say it which kind of promises to be the missing rails but how could anything be rails at this point nothing <laughs> like when you say rails what are you really saying are you just trying to like invoke like an idea or are you actually trying to say you're going to compete with everything that rails does now yeah, I would also argue, right, like with turbo links and some of in fact, we should probably revisit Rails. It's been a, it's been a long time. But with some of the turbo link stuff, I mean, if you look at the Hey app, it's crazy. Rails is so different from what Rails used to be. If you're using some of the newer hotness, like it would be very interesting to take like a Rails three and a Rails seven, uh, kind of the best practices and development methodologies, particularly for a full stack website and say, yeah, this is kind of different. And all hell active record still better than SQL Alchemy. <laughs> well, I'll drop a couple of links in the show notes. I feel like, you know, one of these days what we got to do is track down that West Payne and get him on here and get him to explain himself how he could still defend something like this. I'm going to challenge West Payne. Wes, if you're listening, you pick a language and I'll pick a language and we'll do a challenge. But this challenge, we have to build a tiny, tiny app that pulls some Jupyter Broadcasting public GitHub page maybe for the website and just like looks at the commits or something. We'll think about it. I like it. Yes, it is hammer time. I, I think that soundboard clip is consent, right? I think that's implied consent right there. So you, you've been hanging out with Dick Cheney again, huh? <laughs> <laughs> or that's a little more Harvey Weinstein, let's be honest. Yeah, 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 right. No, when I go when I go duck hunting, I'll let you know. Whoa! I know that you had a little bit of a skirmish this weekend, and uh, I'm, it's kind of. I feel like you're out there doing some field testing for the show, and now you can report back on the Great Migration. I got a little bit of, uh, I won't say sass, but a little, eh, you know, Apple guy saying, "Why do you pave your machines all the time? You, you know, you get a new machine. You don't need to do that. Use Migration Assistant. It's flawless." So do you normally, when you get a new laptop, so like, okay, so walk me through. So you spill your drink, you get rid of your laptop, you buy a brand new machine, just coincidentally as the new hardware lands, and then do you start from a fresh install? Well, if we're going to start from the beginning first, I dance around Buffalo Bill style. Okay, good, good. I'm glad we know that now. Good. Then I inevitably drop the laptop in a pit with a small poodle of some sort. Oops. Oops. But I have never actually used Migration Assistant before. So my usual process is I git pull my damn bash rc that i always forget is seashell now so i have to edit it every single time and i still haven't pushed it up for some reason and uh <laughs> yeah that's just mike being lazy 
And I, you know, you know the drill, right? You got to install Xcode, the command line tools. Then you realize you don't have the headers for Postgres or something. It's both tedious, but at the same time, it's like you're only building back what you need and you're going with the freshest versions of everything. And maybe this is the build where you try a different video player or something, right? So I can see some advantages to not just copying whole hog. But the disadvantage is really that Xcode step because it's just awful. Right? It's just slow and terrible. So... You know, I was getting some flack about this, that it's flawless and it even works across ARM and Intel. That's pretty impressive. Cross architectures. Damn. Yes. Lies are often impressive. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I feel like I have a couple bridges to sell you. So it did appear to work and it did take like an hour and a half, but it very foolishly. And I don't understand why they don't do this because they could certainly add this to the program because you have to actually launch like a little migration assistant application. Um, where it's like, hey, buddy, that's a different CPU architecture, so no. Or we're not going to copy over your homebrew stuff or your command line stuff and leave you leave your system in this insane state where you can totally like chill in Safari. Like if you just like chill in the GUI, you're probably fine. The minute you open Terminal, it's just going to scream in agony. Yeah, so it sounds like it would move some things, but not other things, and it would just be a total hodgepodge. Well, it's not just that it it, it does move them, and it, it moves most of them, but it doesn't check what architecture your stuff is compiled for. And like really common stuff like Homebrew. Homebrew, fun fact, saves in a different location on ARM CPU machines. It saves, it's like slash ops slash Homebrew, where I might get this wrong, but it's like slash library slash some something on intel it's user local bin so you're telling me the migration tool that apple ships in the most recent versions of mac os which support both intel and arm doesn't differentiate on that stuff what is arm code even though you can get info and it's in the metadata of the application it's in the metadata right there available to the system right and i'm not suggesting it should do like program by program I'm suggesting. Oh, I am. Don't you think, dude? Oh, don't you think? I feel like once you plug a machine of the other architecture into the, you know, other architecture, it should be like, hey, man, just there should be like a warning, right? Hey, man, this is going to be wild. Or like, hey, would you like to do just the universal applications? Which, by the way, that means you don't get these three app, four applications and these, you know, whatever. Or, you know, like, would you like to bring over the Intel stuff? Because. Like, you're crapping up, basically, a brand new Mac with a ton of stuff that's going to have to run under Rosetta. Well, this is not a brand new Mac, but yeah. But you get my point, right? If somebody's bought a new M2 or whatever, sits down. Yeah, so you get screwed both ways. If you go Intel to ARM, you unnecessarily run everything in Rosetta, which is dumb. But if you go, what I did is I went ARM to Intel, and it just copies ARM binaries over, and they're just busted. I can't even believe this. Like, I mean, this sounds like something out of a beta tool like an alpha tool that that just hasn't been like updated by the community for the new architecture support not from like the manufacturer of the os and the hardware it was pretty bad i spent about an hour trying to hammer out like these insane terminal errors then i'm like you know what system preferences erase all settings and content and i just did it i paved it by hand and i did the uh you know my normal you know setup process oh man it's so funny right because we're in this state where the M1 and the M2 hardware, it's just some of the best hardware out there. It really is in terms of power and performance. I just had my first experience with some really advanced, very expensive 
audio repair plugins, and um, they've always been single threaded on x86 machines and on uh, Intel Macs, you know, uh, but on like Linux under Wine, just anywhere we've used it. And it just takes forever, like an hour long track just would take at least an hour to render and process. When you're trying to edit, that's just brutal. And this weekend, I was helping out a friend and I was like, well, I'll try this. I've got this on this Mac. I'll try it here on this, on the, you know, the, the MacBook Pro with the Ultra, M1 Ultra in it. And when it lit up all the cores and it did an hour long audio in, I don't know, 20 seconds, it was the first time I saw that, that like huge leap in something that I have used for a decade that's always taken like basically it's a one-to-one ratio whatever the length of the file i was rendering out was you know that was just how long i was going to wait and for the first time ever i saw it and the great thing about it was is this was in a pinch on the go and you know i only had like 20 percent battery left because i hadn't had the machine plugged in for like a week and it, it used like two percent battery to do all of that and that was a that was like wow that's great that is really great but i i have to say I remain unenthused with Mac OS, like the amount of tweaking here and there and little tool that does like this one or two things that cost me at least five or 10 bucks and all that little stuff you got to do to make Mac OS a fully functional workstation. If, if you're honest with yourself, it's more work than setting up the plasma desktop or the GNOME desktop. So on the OS side, or, or, or just like these, this kind of stuff, the migration stuff, this, that isn't a premium experience. You're buying a premium machine, supposedly has a custom OS built by the hardware vendor, yet the migration assistant seems to be clueless about the architecture of the applications. That's actually hilarious. That's, that's a worse experience than you get on the free desktop. Like that kind of stuff, that drives me crazy. But another area that I find sort of user hostile is Apple remains still completely insufficient in the tools that they give their end users to manage their file system and their data. And when you have photos and you have your Xcode projects on there or your media library projects, that stuff is priceless. And APFS has capabilities and tools that are not exposed to the end user in any meaningful way at all. And I just find it completely just unacceptable because Apple of the past went out of their way to integrate this ridiculous time machine effect where you could go to any folder on your Mac and you could hit a stupid button and you go into a stupid space effect and then you could fly through time, but it it visually made sense to restore data. And now Apple has built-in snapshot capabilities into the file system and they don't expose any of that stuff to the user. Time machine remains barely adequate at best and macOS requires tons of little utilities and fixes to make it actually usable. So it's like the hardware has just completely outstretched the software. I don't know if you saw this, but the latest Linux kernel was just released uh, this weekend, right on time. And uh, Linus announced that this was the first Linux kernel that's ever been released from an ARM Mac. He's running Asahi Linux now on his ARM Mac. And that's that's Linus's setup now to run Linux is on a M. I don't know if it's a MacBook Air. Probably that seems to be his favorite machine or what, but. Linus Torvalds is using Apple hardware, and he just released 519 from an ARM64 machine, and he felt like it was worth noting in the release announcement. I mean, that's beautiful. I think that's, yeah, Reddit must be a flame. 
tailscale.com slash coder. Go there to get a free personal account for up to 20 devices. And of course, you support the show when you go to tailscale.com slash coder. Come here, traveler. Let me give you a secret weapon that will help you on your travels because Tailscale is that zero config VPN you have been looking for. It installs on any device in minutes. It manages firewall rules. It handles that double NAT situation. If you're in that situation, you can quickly and easily create a flat network protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. And whatever desktop OS you're on, you can get tools to manage that super simply. Plus, it has a great command line that also makes it really easy to bring things up and down. If you've got five devices, you can probably get everything online in five minutes. It's that easy. I've got it on my Raspberry Pis. I've got it on my mobile devices. I've got it on my x86 boxes. I've got it on my family's computers. I've got it on my virtual machines. I've got it on my VPSs. It brings everything together into one flat network, and then I get static IPs. So now I've got a static IP for the devices I use the most often for those web dashboards I need to get access to or those machines I need to SSH into or that box I got a remote desktop to. It's all one flat network now. And it's changed everything for me. And it literally made the show possible while I was traveling a few months ago. And one of the best parts about it is that it handles that mobile NAT that you get when you're on like a cell phone connection, which can really screw things up for certain types of applications, just intelligently handles that. It also just brilliantly handles the routing so your data doesn't get sent to the wrong area, like, you know, some VPNs might route everything through the VPN connection. Tailscale don't do that. They're always, always intelligent about the way they handle the traffic. Just love that. And why? Why I love it? It's because I can leave it on. That means I can always leave Tailscale connected. So that means that mesh WireGuard protected network is always available to me. And they can sign in through your existing identity provider. So if you're a small business or something, you know, if you got, or maybe it's like, maybe you just like to do things through a single sign on, you want to have some two factor authentication. I don't know what you do. Tailscale will support that too. So go try it out. Go get the always on VPN that really works with GUIs for the platforms you use, super DNS friendly and dead simple to set up. Those are just some of the reasons I use Tailscale every single day. So try it now for yourself for free up to 20 devices at tailscale.com slash coder. That's tailscale.com slash coder. All right. Apparently, we have the secrets to become a successful software engineer. Are, you, we, are we sure we want to just give it away for free? I mean, maybe we should like have some sort of online course they have to sign up for. Or something. Uh, Manning Press isn't giving it away for free ever. They, it's, it's against their religion. Oh. <laughs> okay. No. So, you know, we always get the, hey, I'm starting out emails. You know, what should I look into? Any books? Any courses? And because I'm an old man, I love books. I don't particularly care for video courses. So I used to and still do recommend Mike Gunderloy's Coder to Developer. But that it's a great book. I think you should read it. It's also super dated. There's some stuff in there that it, that will seem somewhat comical, given the way, one, the world has changed with remote work, and two, just the types of technologies that the vast majority of you are probably interested in. Uh, but still, full of good advice. However, however, Manning Press, unashamed, goes for the mantle uh, with Fernando Dalio. I hope I said that right. I don't know if he's Italian, but I gave it the Italian GL thing anyway. So hopefully I said that right, Fernando. Published Skills of a Successful Software Engineer, which weirdly had another title at some point too. It is like Coder to Developer, 
but written after, you know, within the last five years. Okay. Super good. A lot of good advice. Doesn't focus on any particular technologies or languages, but it covers things like TDD, a lot about how to successfully work remotely, particularly 100% remote, which I think a lot of people should probably read. And um, kind of the basics of like, you know, don't be a jackass. But it's targeted very much for beginning junior developers. And it kind of goes through the different concerns that might be hard for you to see at, at that level. Uh, that either your managers or the more senior people on your team might have tips for how to continually improve your skills and literally do continuous improvement. So again, we were just talking about GitOps, right? Stuff like that. I can't say I agree with 100% of everything in the book, but it's worth reading. And I, 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 it's five stars for me. It's a must must buy. All right. Well, of course, we'll have a link at coder.show slash 477. And then uh, we got one more here. Code to developer tools and strategies for delivering your software. And this one, they got a Kindle version. And now it is time for Le Boost. Let's do it. Uh, a Chiron, I'm going to say, came in with uh, a row of duckaroos. I'm a duck. D-U-K duck. Loaded with talent. 2,222 sats. Been listening since episode one. And here's my first boost. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on things like solid pods and the semantic web as a means of building a truly decentralized internet. What's up, Richard Hendricks? Yeah, I feel like I, I totally would love to see a truly decentralized internet, but I don't know if I've seen anything that's gonna, that compels me to say there's going to be traction. Um, and, and we do have an announcement to make in regards to the show and the boost. Uh, Swigs writes in with our last cheap, boost for the show 300 sats uh after today i we're gonna set the limit to 2000 sats to get into the show just to keep it tight because we got to keep you know we want to make it nice and tight here on the show we don't want to take too long but swigs you get the last one because i hadn't made the announcement yet and i think it's perfect i'm glad actually because swigs writes i've been listening to jupiter broadcasting for the better part of a year now i finally broke down and installed the fountain app and it's actually really nice to be able to contribute to the podcast of my choice in such an easy manner. Yeah, because it just puts the button right there while you're listening. Side note, I run Sailfish OS on a Sony Xperia 10. Man, the people who have Xperia's love them. He says the Fountain app works great as expected. Thanks for the content. And keep up the podcasting 2.0 fight. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. All right, Optimus Gray, who's also watching live right now, boosted in with a big set of Grandpa Ducks, 22,222 sats. Thank you very much. And here's something for your trouble. All right, I feel like this is where we're going to get in trouble in this episode, Mike, but here we go. Says, I know you guys are not the lawyers. Uh, this is not lawyer radio, but I have been tasked with coming up with the open source alternatives and tools for dependencies we currently use. Where is a good source on what types of licenses can be used in the corporate world? You know, is simple BSD or versus open core? What are all the differences and where should I go? So there's a question right there. Like, do you have anywhere you send people? I've got a link that I'm going to put in the show notes that is like a, a look from a legal level and they have a visual matrix breakdown of the different licenses. But I'm curious what you would do. Like if you were going to go research if this is legal, is this risky? You know, like there's got to be somewhere you start, right? I mean, I have a pretty uh, super conservative thing. If it's not Apache, BSD, or MIT, I, I don't use it. Yeah, that's kind of the safe way to do it, I suppose. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'll definitely take a look at your chart. Yeah, and let us know what you think out there, audience, because I think that is a, a question that we've never 100% answered on the show. 
but I do have a link in the show notes and maybe we can start there. I love this this next username. Winebat boosted in with 5000 sats. Boost. After the last couple of episodes, it may be in t- it may be time to start the flutter challenge. Maybe bring Wes in. Maybe I mean, that's so time consuming. That's what the thing about the challenges. Yeah, the challenges are tough, especially like if it's going to be a gooey thing. That's even harder. And it's, it, we should keep it on the back. We should do something. I don't, you know, Flutter, we hear a lot about Flutter, but I'm not sure if that's that the Flutter folks and write in if you are, you know, are there, are there a lot of them listening or are we just hearing from the are they super vocal? Right. Is it, yeah. You know, but that's what we said about Rust early on, too. <laughs> And it's all Jeremy Solar. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Trev Dev boosted. Hello, Trev Dev. Good to see you again. 2048 sats. Coming in hot with the boost. (laughs) He's following up to a question I asked last week when he said that, you know, Microsoft is trying to extinguish Linux. I said, do you really think they're trying to extinguish it? He said, I guess what I mean by extinguish is make Linux as irrelevant as possible. Okay. Not long ago, working primarily with FOSS was not easy to convince people to do. I agree. He goes on to say, Microsoft sees the competitive nature of free software today. They'll keep fluffing us up, buying our platforms, buying our talent, and taking over as much as they need to keep the Linux desktop from being competitive. The cloud? Maybe. At the end of the day, they need to convince managers and bean counters that their solution is better. Yeah, that might be it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. See, I, I I think nobody thinks about desktop Linux more than desktop Linux people. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. And I, I love my dev one and my, my pop OS and all that. But I, I think Microsoft is just happy to make a ton of money on Azure using Linux. And they're cool with that. Right. And I know that using word is doing a lot of work in that sentence, but I agree. And if you want to, if you want to use the GNOME desktop and you want to write all of your code in GNOME text and then, you know, upload it, no one, no one wants to write all of their... In fact, I mean, if you, but they if don't care, right? As long as you're running on Azure services or maybe you're using VS Code, they don't care. I don't even think they really care about VS Code. It's all just to get you up to Azure. Like that's, it's, I, we, didn't we predict this like three years ago or four years ago? It's just, it's all about Azure. It's All roads lead to Azure. The only thing, that, the only influence desktop Linux has had, not only, but the biggest one is KDE's naming conventions. Every time I go to a store and see a giant K, I'm, I'm like... Is that a Linux product <laughs> or the GNOME stuff? The you know the G edits. Like it's it's not kibble. It's K kibble. I don't even know why. My poor dog. Yeah. And here's why. Here's why I'm pretty confident in this assessment is because in this assessment, Microsoft makes money when Linux is successful or Windows is, is successful. They don't need Linux to fail to make money in this scenario. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure they make more money on Azure now too. All right. Noob Steve comes in with a big grandpa row of ducks, 22,222 sats. Thank you very much. And here's something for your trouble. Longtime listener, first time boost. Boost. Written in before, but I'm the dude who retired from the Navy and is hoping to move into dev work. I've got two questions. Oh, great, Noob Steve. This is first, I hear this on other podcasts, how much everyone just seems to love Rust, how awesome it is. If that's the case, why are there no jobs for it? I'd love to learn it, but it definitely needs to focus on what's going to get me a job, at least in the next two years. That's a fair assessment right there. Yeah. So everybody loves Rust because Rust is technically very good. Employers don't hire for a lot of Rust because Rust is technically very good and very hard to develop in if you don't want to spend lots of money on very senior developers. That's a great observation right there. And you know what it is, is a lot of senior developers who've been in these positions forever are just rewriting their tools in Rust. They've already got the jobs. Yeah, a lot of like the more vocal Rust people 
are people who've been doing C++ for a long time and are just tired of getting bitten but right it's uh I I mean maybe again if you're a a new person who's like diving into Rust as your first language I God protect you God bless you <laughs> I mean, good luck but I I don't know like if you're looking for quantity of jobs anything webby Python can do basically anything because we've all decided that we'll just we're Google every every problem can be solved with a Python script and unfortunately especially with your Navy background well not unfortunately but it depends on how much of a Linux zealot you are. .NET, baby, especially with that military background. As long as you got a nice honorable discharge there, there are tons of contractors who will totally hire you to do C-sharp. I agree with everything, plus one to all of that. And don't feel bad about it either, Noob Steve, because, you know, say you go down the .NET path, you go, you know, heavy with the web development stuff. It could be, you know, three, four years, five years. It doesn't mean you don't pick something up in the meantime. You don't start a side hobby. You don't start learning something else. You don't transition to something else. You just got to get that ball rolling. No, also uh, being a veteran or soon to be uh, soon to be veteran, that puts you for that particular. And now maybe you don't want to do the military contracting. Who knows? But that puts you in a basically automatically ahead of anybody else. Even if you go work for a smaller end contractor, there's tons of them around. They're always hiring .NET. Yeah, that's a great point. That's probably the easiest path. Keep us posted, Noob Steve. And he actually rounds it out. We're just about done. He rounds it out with a double boost. With double another, grandpas. What is another this, another old grandpas. All right. My other question is maybe a little controversial. I'm not looking to start a flame war, but I just actually want to understand why the hell would anyone want to use Vim or Emacs oh, no. when there's tools like VS Code and oh, JetBrains? No. I have a student license, so I get JetBrains cheap, but I couldn't imagine using anything but JetBrains and VS Code. What am I missing? Is there some kind of amazing functionality I'm overlooking? Me trying to quit Vim is the best way to seed your encryption, by the way. Um, I, I Part of me agrees with Noob Steve. I'd like to hear the audience's answer, though. I'd like people to let us know. Boost in and let us know what you think. But And, and Steve, I'm just going to double down on my .NET. Check out Visual Studio. You will you will love it. Or JetBrains uh, Project Writer or just ReSharper in Visual Studio. You'll be very happy. Uh, I don't know. People are purists, right? I mean, I use Vim for some stuff but i have been seduced by the ways of vs code i'm eager to try jet brains jet, not blains brains it's not some sort of strange plane what is it fleet project fleet i've been playing around with zed i i don't know i mean why do people like emacs and vim well because one it's a nice alpha nerd flex and two a lot of the first of all emacs a lot of the emacs guys are just like bsd graybeards and there must be some core functionality, though. There must be, right? Well, I've, I've seen, especially Emacs, Emacs setups where you could just, like, like their email client is an Emacs, right? They just live in Emacs. So that, yeah. I don't know. Work with whatever makes you happy, ex- except uh, TextMate 2 is better. So, <laughs> Magenta Eagle comes in with our last boost, and it's a hot one. Coming in hot with the boost. <laughs> When's Mike going to admit that the best language is C and not C sharp and not that other Dead language. I think I think he's talking about Objective C. What? Dead. Death is only the beginning. Coming in with the uh, with the opinions. Also coming in with a four hundred and twenty sat follow up. Uh, MIT is greater than GPL. You redeemed yourself, sir. I thought you. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd like that. Uh, no, again, like we 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 used to cover .NET a lot when I was I was doing a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Zam- Xamarin, Zamarian, whatever the hell you call it stuff. Uh, C-sharp is really good, right? I would say it's Java, but better. Um, although Java's copied a lot of their features too. So 
It's really good. Objective C is better, but it lost because Apple decided war crimes. Um, Apple, yes, Apple. Deci- the king he doth decree that the brackets will be dropped. Yep. That's Although ev- about several times a year, I doth get a call. They need my ancient wisdom, my pre-arc ancient wisdom. Go to the hills. Summon one of the ancient ones. Hey, do you know this Michael Dominic? Mike Dominic. It's not a name I've heard. It's Obi-Wan, right? No. Not a name I've heard in many years. I once was a friend of your father's until he died. <laughs> I just talked to my dad last night. He became a Swift developer. He's dead inside. Yeah. <laughs> yes, no, C Sharp's great. And uh, I think you should call Noob Steve and you guys should both download Visual Studio. Boom. All right, we got a few thank you boosts coming in too. 50 sats from user 4830, 100 sats from Ibuki, who says thanks, 496 from R. And then, my goodness, how about this? Another 2048 sats from Noob Steve because he just loves us, which makes him the baller of the episode. He's on it. Go try out Fountain FM if you want to send us a boost. I have my referral link in the show notes. I don't get money from it, but I think it ties you to my account because I will post clips from time to time from the JB shows. And uh, that's part of what makes Fountain neat is they have a whole clip discovery system so you can find new podcasts all the time. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes or go to newpodcastapps.com if you'd like to get a new podcast app that is podcasting to compatible or you can grab Breeze, B-R-E-E-Z dot technology and of course you can always send us in your emails over at coder.show slash contact we got the contact form over there and we love hearing from you it is a big part of this show so write it in however you'd like to mr dominic is there anywhere you want to send the good people uh go to alice.dev and at dumanuko on twitter that's what i would do that's the pro move what did you say coder completionist right that's the that's, that's right the, that's the coder completionist so is the membership thank you to our members our QA crowd over at coderqa.co. The new Coderly is out. I've been getting really good feedback on that Coderly. So big thank you too to Alex Gigatexel who helped us with that. Been getting a lot of feedback on that. And people have loved that Coderly. So if you remember, you can find it in your downloads area or it's also in your ad-free feed. We make an ad-free feed for this show available to our members at coderqa.co. And when the Coderly comes out, we publish it in that feed. And then it's also, if you go to your memberful dashboard, it's available as a standalone download as an mp3 that you can listen wherever you like okay well we'll wrap it up there i want to mention that you can always join us live we do the show on the mondays which is incredible really if you think about it who has time on a monday somehow we do we do it at noon pacific 3 p.m eastern over at jupiter.tube you can watch the vidya version of the show if you're in so inclined like you can also catch it when we down when we make it available for download like other podcasts there's this thing called rss and you can go get it it's at coder.show slash subscribe. And then last but not least, links to what we talked about today are over at coder.show slash 477. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coder Radio Program. And we'll see you right back here next week.